To celebrate Black History, The Post and Courier is presenting a series of podcasts and video interviews featuring 12 dynamic South Carolina leaders to know. We talk to people from all over the state about their efforts to advance social justice, celebrate black culture, address community needs, and create a better world. Our podcasts and videos will be released monthly through January 2022. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, go to postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. Join us in learning about our state's remarkable change agents. At the College of Charleston, we're a collection of visionaries, disruptors, rebels, dreamers. Whether it's in the sciences, the arts, education, business, or technology, we study greatness to unlock our own greatness. Because at the College of Charleston, we prepare leaders, not followers. We believe that originality is the best way to stand out. And you'll find that our way of thinking, like the opportunity here, is boundless. To celebrate Black History, The Post and Courier is presenting a series of video interviews and podcasts featuring 12 dynamic South Carolina leaders to know. We talk to people from all over the state about their efforts to advance social justice, celebrate black culture, address community needs, and create a better world. Our videos and podcasts will be released monthly through January 2022. To watch or to listen and to read feature stories about major civil rights milestones, significant organizations, past and present, and South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, Go to postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. Join us in learning about our state's remarkable change agents. The racial and economic disparities in this country have only been widened by the coronavirus and amplified by the most recent acts of injustice. That's why Bank of America has committed $1 billion over four years to address critical gaps in affordable housing, access to health care, employment and job skills, and the resources small businesses need to succeed. We can do more to further advance racial equality and economic opportunity for all. Today, we welcome Marcus McDonald. Hi, Marcus. Hey. How are you doing? I'm amazing. Yeah, amazing? Really? Yeah. In this day and age? Yep, living the dream. Living the dream. Yeah, somebody's dream. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Black Lives Matter Charleston is uh, kicking. Right. We're You've kicking, roaming, doing our thing, um, trying to be as active as possible. We're in every, every little thing, so it's, it's hard not to find us. Yeah. So I want, I want to know a little bit about you and uh, how it is you got to this place and how it is you've sort of taken the reins of Black Lives Matter Charleston. Uh, give us a little sense of who you are and where you come from and the values that were instilled in you growing up and who some of your heroes and mentors have been, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'm from Columbia originally. My family moved to Columbia uh, a couple years before I was born. My granddad was a caterer in Charleston and Columbia, so he was a big influence on my life. Um, raised pretty much in a very Christian, um, very, you know, or, like not really venturing out from the status quo. Everybody was very, you know, this is how it is and you know we did a lot of history and my granddad was huge on you know black history and learning our roots but a lot of it just more like 
you know, thinking about and like how can we look on our past and how can we, you know, learn from it. But a lot of it wasn't, all right, let's get out and like do it. And yeah. my granddad was a big, you know, boater and like he was one who inspired me a lot. And I know that's, you know, something that you'd want me to ask as well. But um, he was a big influence in my life just because in the beginning, I remember when I was like, I believe like 12 years old, 11 years old, um, he took me to my uh, to the polls and we like hand out candy. And I remember in this relax section, I was doing the same thing just by myself. So um, he's a big <laughs> influence on me and he'll call me every now and again. Like I said, he's from the Christian kind of like more, you know, relaxed, you know, not as radical um, or as, you know, um, yeah. combative, you know, state of mind. So like more protective. Me, yeah, exactly. Protecting so the community, but not yeah. out there taking big risks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he'll call me sometimes like, Marcus, you should have said that. Or Marcus, like, I love you, but, you know, uh -huh. so. Oh, well, that's interesting because you're really referring to uh, a pretty common generational divide, you know, where the older generation is very tuned into politics and the condition of African-Americans and the African-American experience and how it all works, but they're not gonna stick their necks out necessarily and they get nervous when the young people in their community do stick their necks out. They get a little, right? Yeah. So your grandfather's sort of like that, right? Yeah, somewhat like that. And the thing is too, and I'll always give it to the older generation, they're beaten up pretty badly. They went through the civil yeah. rights movement. So I never like, you know, like I always come up at a way of respect, even like not not even only my granddad, but other elders in the Charleston area, like Pastor Dixon, and um, you know a lot of the elders just reach out. And I, like I, I'll listen to what they say and process it, but I do realize it comes from the lens of they've been fighting this fight for decades, like their whole life. So yeah. like you know some things that you know we might see as something that you know very attainable and something that we're going to do right now, they might see as oh like we already tried to do that and it hasn't been working. So maybe figure out another way to do it or either that or yeah. they just, you know, lose a little bit of their fight in general. Sometimes know. I'll hear some of those elders say, oh, those young kids, they've got a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been through, we know how this works and it's not so easy. Yeah. And there is a certain enthusiasm among younger people mm -hmm. who, and, le and a, a lot less patience, I guess, right? Because yeah some of these problems have been so persistent for so long. Yeah, and I was, I don't want to cut you off, but I do want to say too, um, as far as like the patience goes, I feel like a lot of the older generation believes that like, oh, like it'll work itself out. When I feel like a lot of our urgency comes in, like we're gonna have to live throughout this versus like, like, you know, if the politicians are an elder is like 80 or 70, like they're, you know, they're gonna die out before climate change or like a lot of these yeah. real big things that are gonna, you know, hit our generation, you know, are really gonna affect us, so. So in other words, there's a kind of intersectionality, to use a, a popular term right now, mm -hmm. uh, between social justice issues and climate justice issues. And so there's an urgency that's imposed on your generation that's of a somewhat different nature. Yeah. Um, and you can't afford to be patient and wait. I mean, yeah. things have to change more Because we've seen it and just, you know, throw another number out there. For example, like the racial disparities on the black dollar versus the how much a white male will make, like it's been the same since the 50s. Mm -hmm. So you think about just that number, like, we, like we've gone through so much, you know, progress and done all this stuff, but um, I'll quote a Malcolm X quote real quick. He said something, and I'm, I might butcher it a little bit, but I don't call progress when you take out the knife a little bit or six inches, you have to take the knife out and let it heal. And then you take the knife out, like we're still making the same amount we made in the 50s, you yeah. know? So it's right. just like that, that's where we're at right now. Like we're still like, the knife's still in us and we're like, we need to get it out first and heal it and do all the, you know, put some alcohol on it and all yeah. that, you know, before we can say like, all right, you know, we're, 
you know, we've come to a place. Because, you know, like I said, with that number, it's the one of the ones that hit me at an early age. Yeah. I was like, we still, like, it's 50 years later, we still haven't, you know, the, the racial, you know, And that's just one equity. example of these disparities, just one. these persistent yeah. disparities, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a fascinating issue to me for some reason, the, the, the whole generational divide or difference, you know, these difference in perspective. I have long heard in, in speaking with older African-Americans um, this, this feeling, this attitude about patience and persistence, that it's, it's you know, each, each uh, issue is a little battle to wage, but it's part of a much bigger war that has to be fought and that's going to take time and we have to be patient and persistent. And I have to say I'm, I, I've always sort of admired uh, this ability to think in these terms, to see the long game and to know deep down that, you know, th this is a, a, a long effort, you know, it's going to mm -hmm. take quite a while. Uh, I don't think I would have such patience. Um, and I, I think a lot of white people in general probably don't have that same perspective. You know, no, I mean, African-Americans have been under the boot for so long. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have noticed, though, that younger African-Americans like yourself are indeed less inclined to be patient. Yeah. Nevertheless, that's a valuable lesson, right? Um, I mean, this history is long and drawn out. So how do you balance that? How do you find your equilibrium? Uh, how do you push the right amount while respecting the, the bigger forces of history Process, that are at yeah. work? Well, the way we like to balance it now, I use we because, you know, not only me, but it's like people in my organization, but also like art, the collective and the people who I like have in my company or just like, you know, who, who I work with. and. I feel like the way we balance it just as a collective in general, it's just been um, focusing on not compromising as much and, you know, this is what we want and then once we have this stuff organized and we have, you know, our demands, then, you know, if we have to compromise or like, like we, we can do that after the demand has been issued or after, you know, this is what we want. But I feel like a lot of times what will happen is we, we won't ask for something because we think they'll shoot it down and we won't ask for enough. And that's what we've been trying to get away from. It's just like we're not asking for just a half or just a quarter. We're asking for the whole thing. And um, then take it from there. Exactly. It's like then we can, you know, I mean, it, in the same thing with negotiations, you go big and then, you know, you can work back down. And yeah. That's what we've been doing just with a lot of our neg negotiations and a lot of the stuff we've been working on. That's interesting because the early part of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, for example, the, the whole integrationist period of that, really w took a much more um, incremental approach. You know, let's, let's get this and then the next and then the next and then we'll get that law and then we'll push Congress and then we'll talk to the president and then we'll get there and then we'll get there. So it was very incremental. Uh, even, even if that approach had its critics at the time saying very much what you're saying, like, no, 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 we, we need to go for it. We need yeah. the whole thing now. Yeah, and I will say this, and not to interrupt you again, but uh, with- Feel free, I, you can I, interrupt me anytime, <laughs> Marcus, okay. anytime. Sounds good, I'll keep yeah. that noted. But uh, MLK, they were really, and I, I don't know, it was an article or an interview I was listening to. But anyways, they're trying to get MLK to like, just do it through the courts and like, don't get in the streets. And a lot of people would like to paint MLK as just like, 
very like you know like po political like politician guy very nice sweet guy but like and yeah there was a side of me as a pastor very christian you know had those values but at the same time he was like i'm not about to go through this course i'm gonna hit the streets my people need it now and i know there's one speech and i love it i'm gonna post it on mlk day but it was like i'm tired of march for something that should be mine at birth and it's just like you know things like that is like you know our how we like to like just like pull from history and like use it to like what we're doing right now, because we're nego negotiating with government, government bodies, we're yeah. negotiating with you know companies who want to come in here and you know do things. So it's like we, we like to use history to influence our decisions. So why though? You didn't answer this earlier. Oh my bad. Why are you doing this? What motivates you? What motivates me? I mean, I look around and. Um, I've been an activist of birth. I feel like, I mean, you look around, you see the issues that are going on, and it's just hard to not be engaged. And I feel like people who aren't engaged are just willfully ignorant. And I don't use that to, you know, criticize people because, you know, I know people have their own issues and f familiar things or whatever. But, um, I mean, it just, from birth, I've always just been, and I'll, I'll credit it to this too, and this is something I've been thinking about is both of my parents are deaf, and I feel like a lot of people don't know that. But, and what that means is, as a kid, you can hear, I have to speak for them a lot. So I feel like a lot of that just original activism just came from me. Like, I had to speak for my mom. If we go to a restaurant or if we go to, you know, a teacher's conference or something. So I'm speaking for them. And then, you know, as I got older, once I saw the stuff going around me, I was like, and especially like as, you know, we're getting closer to May and stuff, I saw a lot of the same things. Just like, for example, with the Eastside community, after the May 30th protest um, where everybody's dispersed, you know, violently by the police. The, and everybody's dispersed from, you know, the Marion Square. The CPD went to the east side and like tear gas folks and was like shooting rubber bullets. And then Latanya, somebody I consider a really good mentor and close friend of me now, reached out and was like, we need y'all's help to like, you know, vouch for us and, you know, speak up for us. And, you know, I kind of akin to that same thing. Like she felt like she didn't have the voice to like step out and say like, you know, this is wrong. We need an apology, and I was like, I was like, all right, let's set up a meeting. Boom, boom, boom. Like, you know, like we demand this. Bit. You know, this so is a little tiny of the East Side community yeah, development. Yeah, yeah. So it's like we demand these things, and like this is what we want. So it's just like I, I, I felt like a lot of my early on, just like you know, speaking for my parents helps. It, it like inspires me, and just like the way I look at the world inspires me. To just like go in. Well, that's a very interesting thing to know about you what mm -hmm. what about um so did that experience kind of force you to be more perceptive i guess from a young age you had to be yeah. aware of everything 100%. that was going on and tuned in and i will say this too and this is something i always say i feel like black males grow up faster than almost any other demographic in america because we had a young age i mean even me myself like my like i said my mom's deaf so um she didn't have that many good you know job opportunities so like she's working at hardy's and i was working at another restaurant making more money than her as a 16 year old so just like me you know thinking about like i can't even like ask my mom for money like i have to kind of pay for everything myself and i feel like, and i i'm a substitute teacher now so i see a lot of kids even now they're 16 17 i gotta work you know like boom 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 like we're going through all this stuff in our head like we grow up like i felt like i was like 21 at 16 15 okay. like your friends are dying on top of that like you're going through so much poverty and just seeing all this happen like there's some people who fall into it and they're like you know like i can't do anything i just have to keep working and keep you know providing for my family and then there's some people who are like well why does it have to be like this like why are we still going through these situations like somebody's got to stand up and say something that's you know what i've been and i'm, I'm sorry if i didn't answer your question no well you did now yeah I've, and that's fascinating and that that explains uh, quite a lot i think 
All right, well, tell me a little bit about uh, Black Lives Matter Charleston. It's um, a newer organization. Um, I mean, it's been active a couple of years, a little more than two years, I guess, three, uh, it how was, long? When so did, when did it all come together and how did it come together? Because so I know you've been very collaborative with a lot of other organizations. Yeah, 100%. So I do want to pay my respects to Muhyiddin Baha, excuse me. Um, he was the original founder right. of Charleston Black Lives Matter, and he um, unfortunately was assassinated, killed, um, in New Orleans, um, on his bike, year, just so, riding his bike, casually right down Apparently the street. Apparently, it was a what they say it was just a miss. He thought of somebody else, but what have you? But anyway, so after that, there was a long period of time with, you know, there's infighting and just, you know, I don't want to speak on it too much, but um, they and shout out to Letitia Mar because she's the one who really like reached out from like, and she was one of the core like leaders of of that, you know, of that organization. And she and when you know, the George Floyd protest happened, she reached out and she was like, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. We had some, some tests at the How beginning. How did she know to reach out to you? You were she, active we're already, Yeah, we're already Charleston? doing, uh, well, I was at College Charleston. I had watched from the sidelines. I had been in protest before just on the sidelines. Okay. However, I had never been like directly involved. And then once I started leading the protest after the George Floyd thing, you know, she reached out and, you know. With a trombone, with the we trombone. might add. Yeah, right. and I remember, you know, I had started the Instagram too, just trying to get the word out as much as possible. And um, she kind of just reached out and she was like, you know, we, we're old, we're, you know, we're, and I, she got to beat me up saying that later, but uh, we, we have our kids and we have responsibilities and stuff. Right. So it's like, we can't hit the streets like y'all can, but we, we need the we young rock people. With you. We rock with you. And they also help so much with like bail funds and, you know, teaching us the ropes. So um, okay. as far as my like, you know, part of it, I, was just, you know, a soldier, just a marcher, somebody who was there, I ran the Instagram, you know, I was in the general group, and I always remember this, because like, it taught me a lot about leadership. Um, at the beginning, um, it was me and probably like 20 or 30 folks in, you know, the Charleston BLM who, you know, were like leading the protest, this is back in May, uh -huh. and there was a vote, because like, there was a speech I was in, they're like, oh, president of Charleston Black Lives, Mark, Mark Sandano, and a lot of people were like, oh, like, you know, you're the leader, da, da, da. I'm like, I didn't know you're leader. Like, we didn't, we didn't vote on it, so a lot of people didn't really see me as leader. So I was like, dang. Well, and I, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm the leader. Like, we're good. But anyway, so I was like, all right, let me take a step back, because people were like, you're not leader. Like, we need to vote on it, da da da. So we did a vote, and I ended up. People voted that they didn't want me to be leader, but they didn't. They just like didn't want anybody else. We just like, had like figure it out. They didn't want a leader at all. Exactly. They just so wanted I, everybody to. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, I understand that. I'm gonna just you know back off. But I, I was like. I'm not about to back up. I'm gonna just like continue doing work and just like being an activist and doing my thing. And it just happened naturally where everybody kind of like warmed up to me. The pandemic is so hard for grassroots organizers because like a lot of it's just like getting out to people and like yeah. having in-person meetings. So like in the beginning, it was really tough just getting people together and people st for people to see me as a leader. But you know, after a couple months rolled by, I mean, I I was like consistent and I you know we were continuous in just what we were doing. So I yeah. feel like that was. You know, how it kept so it you're going. Mark, Marcus McDonald, the activist who happens to be affiliated with Black Lives Matter Charleston and has now kind of brought Black Lives, Charleston, Black Lives Matter Charleston uh, into fruition in the last few months, especially during the pandemic yeah. uh, and since George Floyd and since the May 30th episodes downtown. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is kind of the evolution. Of life. We're proud of who we are and what we believe. We are among the 200,000 people who work for Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? 
So tell me a little bit about uh, how you uh, work with some of the other organizations in town. There, there are established ones uh, like the National Action Network, but there are also newer, smaller groups that, are, that have cropped up in recent months and years all over the place. Yep. And so how do you work with them and coordinate? Well, one thing, and this is something I bet everybody who's lived through this past year can say, a lot of Zoom meetings. A lot of Zoom. A lot of, you know, just trying to reach out and be, is like, because you can't meet somebody at an event anymore. It's all just like reaching yeah. out. So like, I used to be in sales, so I have to use my sales like, hey, my name is Marcus from CHS Film. Like, you know, I want to collab or something like that. So I, I, you know, have been doing a lot of re reaching out. We connect with like, shout out Mika from Charleston Activist Network. Mm -hmm. um, Jason from United Front, like we just, Jason we try Jones. to, yeah, Jason Jones, um, we, we collect on a lot of things and I guess just the way we work out is just trying to be in community with each other. But what we've been doing is just, you know, trying to uplift people's causes so everybody has their own like either neighborhood or cause that they're really passionate about and it's all like we're saying with the intersectionality. So it's a lot of times where we're just like, it might not have anything really directly to do with us, but we'll be like, all right, we'll, you know, shout Support. out on Instagram or, yeah. you know, be there for you during the event. Or if it's a march, you know, we'll like, you know. So everybody has his, his or her niche. Their role, yeah. So what is Black yeah. Lives Matter's niche? I mean, what, what are the issues that you're most focused on? Well, we're most focused, excuse me. We're most focused on um, a lot of different things. One of our main things, and this is something that we're able, and we're proud to say that we're able to um, not only sponsor, but have direct influence on, is the Commission on Equity, Inclusion, and Racial Conciliation. Um, as y'all know, as you know, viewers may or may not know, but after the protest, I went to the mayor, and you know, me and some other people within CHS Berlin were just like, you know, Mayor, we are marching for these things, especially with the criminal justice. However, it's a multifaceted problem and it has to have a multifaceted solution. So we were really pushing him. We didn't know that he was going to come up with the commission exactly the way it you know, has been iterated now, but um, we just told him like, it, it's an you know, overarching problem and you have yeah. to do what you can to make, you know, to solve it. Like, you can't you know, solve everything, but you have the power to at least like, create a commission or something, like a special committee or something. And he did. And he did. And you know, I'm luckily I'm on it. I'm on the uh, not luckily, but you know, I work you know really hard to get on it. But anyways, um, I'm on the health and environmental justice one. I'm really you know tied in with the Michael Better from the criminal justice uh, subcommittee, um, Alvin Johnson and economic empowerment. I talked to him yesterday, and he has a lot of good stuff he's working on. And um, just like go back on my background, I'm a finance major, so. Um, at CFC, I was a finance major at CFC, so the economic empowerment's huge for me. So we've been just tied in Crystal Rouse from the education. So we've just been tied in with all of them and, you know, trying to just push for more progressive things and um, look for what's in the commission. Also see the activists that have been doing work on the outside and see if they can implement some of the things right. they've been working on in those recommendations, yeah. just feed them through. And um, we'll continue to do that. And, they're saying that the commission is supposed to be over soon. You know, I'm not about to go too deep into that, but you know, we have some stipulations on that. But um, that's the main work. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm working with them. And economic then also development is one of the, the main focus points of, of Black Lives Matter Charleston, right? Yeah, yeah, it's one of our main tenets. And I mean, you know, it's it's reflective on a lot of what we do. Um, on the east side too, and there's a couple more plugins I'm gonna do like ECDC. Mm -hmm. um, they're doing their learning center. We help the kids out with their math. Sometimes I come in there like give them a little smart like little math like money lesson and 
um, the kids there, like, they're, they're so, like, really, they, like, love it just being in their own community and just, you know, being with their friends, but also, you know, being able to get their work done, having Latanya to, you know, get their bag, and it just feels like they feel like they're belonging. It's not feeling like, you know, they're not unsafe or it. And this know. has been really important during the pandemic so because a lot of these kids are out of the classroom. And so. the virtual, like, a lot of them don't have a safe space to work in yeah. their homes. Yeah. And even when I was at home, I didn't have a good place, like, other than my room. And, um, you know, that's been huge for us. Another thing we've been working on, on the economic empowerment side is um, we're starting a financial literacy class. Um, it's tied with the city, but it's going to be called Black Power Financial Literacy. It's going to be led by me. Um, it's going to be um, every other Wednesday at St. Julian Divine Center. And it's going to be financial literacy classes with the racial equity lens. Uh -huh. So like tying in some of the things that have been happening over the last hundred years that make it the way it is now that, you know, the issues that you may or may not be going through, like, this is why it is and kind of just like mixing that with like how you can like not only budget but invest and you know um make your if you have a business like you know making that business more profitable yeah. you know social media marketing all of that when so are that's you gonna get that started um it's actually we're having our introductory class um next wednesday mm -hmm. we've been trying to keep it a little more low-key just because we're trying to serve the people in the community and not blow it up but you know we, we do intend to have like you know some zoom stuff going on and have you know have it streamed so more people can watch but right now we're just trying to have mostly these people in the community who we know need it but at some point in yeah. february 2021 you'll have this up and running oh yeah now it'll yeah. be it'll be public you can go on zoom i'll probably have like a facebook stream or something like that okay that's good because um, this video might not show up until May or June or whatever. Yeah, but yeah, not This, yeah, this will still be going, it'll right? It'll still be going, <laughs> okay, yeah, good. we'll still have it going on. And it's something that we're excited to work on too, because it's like, we, a lot of times, like, look up to like our ancestors, like I've been saying before, and the Black Panther Party was all about just like helping the community and um, just being out there for those small things. So they had like a health clinic, they had, you know, people who help you with your taxes, they had everything going right. on. So it's just like, you know, why can't we be the so 21st century? Is that your century? model? I mean, we. In some ways, yes. Some ways, no. Like, there's some things that we don't totally agree with them on, but we like to like follow them out on a lot of different things yeah. they're doing. We're going to come out with a newsletter soon. It's going to be um, a lot. A lot of the inspiration stylistically will be from the Black Panther newspapers. So. Yeah, yeah. And the Black Panther Party. Not everybody really knows this. They think of the Black Panther Party as this very militant kind of confrontational, uh, radical uh, force that emerged during the Black Power movement. But they did a huge amount of community service, you know, mm -hmm. community outreach and service. Yep. They set up all kinds of programs, especially in Oakland, but elsewhere yeah. too, in LA and elsewhere. Yeah. The free breakfast program, that's the yeah. reason why kids have free breakfast and lunches now, that's is because right. the work they did. And that often goes overshadowed. And, you know, that's been something we've been trying to do with Crystal Ross as far as like with the curriculum, making sure like the kids nowadays like know that, you know, the great things that, you know, this party did. And hopefully like in 20 years, 15 years, I'll be like looking in on my history books like, I did this, yeah, like, right. you know, so hopefully. Now, the Panthers' effort was part of this kind of broader philosophy of self-determination and self-sufficiency and looking after, you know, the, the black community looking after itself because obviously the white community wasn't, you know, only pulled the knife out a tiny little bit yeah. to refer back to Malcolm X. And so it was all part and parcel of this kind of larger philosophical approach and this effort. Do you... Do you have a kind of larger philosophical uh, approach to, to what you do? Well, other than the obvious, you know, economic development and assisting the community and working with the young kids and, and fighting for criminal justice and so on and so forth, is there um, kind of an overarching... Like ideology that I subscribe ideology to? Ideology that you subscribe to? 
I wouldn't, like, I've been tough. Like, I've, like, you know, flown through different, like, you know, stages where I'll say one thing or one thing or the other. I'm still, um, honestly, I'm, I'm not conflicted, but as far as my overall ideology, I'd say I'm just focused on equity. I, I, I feel like there's no, like, there's title. Like, I guess I'd call me, like, left, leftist. Um, but I feel like as far as, like, a, like, title, um, I, I don't, like, go my those as much. I just, like, you know, focusing on, um, the, the smaller things, as far as like my ideology, like step-by-step processes, obviously, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'd love to see the racial equity as far as like economic ways. So I could see myself, you know, as far as like my future, and I know this is another question, but you know, being an economic, economist and like looking on how we can, as we go through these business cycles in our future, yeah. you know, uplifting the black community just right. in a long-term way, like over the next 100 years, 400 years, like where is the black community gonna be and will we still be making 51 cents per dollar? Social you know? justice economics, but it sounds to me like you're a capitalist. No, see, I, I, I get I that a lot of people, so many, so, many pe- so many people, will, uh, especially <laughs> in the beginning, like, oh, like you believe we can work through the system. It's like, I get that, like I, I'd love to dismantle the system and you know, everybody makes the same amount, but at the same time, it's like. But what do you mean so. by that? What do you mean? Like, how? What do you? This is actually this is this is an important question that I wanted to ask you anyway. Okay. So let's put it this way: it, if you could, if all of the work you did was a hundred percent effective, and you were forging ahead, and you had collaborators, and all this stuff, where would you like to see the United States of America, the Charleston area? but also the U.S. in general, to be in 10 years, 10 years? 20 years from now? 20 like, wh- years? What is your ideal social situation? In 20 years, I believe Charleston should be in a place where, well, one, I don't know how the climate would be. I could see it's parts of Charleston being underwater, but that's a whole other thing. But as far as ideology, I could see us moving further to the left and also influencing um, you know, the counties and places around us in that way. But as far as like, you know, and I feel like it's it's a tough question for me, at least just because like, there's so many things I could be see, see changed. But if we want to look at it from like an overarching perspective, I see that we'll look at 2020 and be like, this is where it before, I mean, there's been, and it will still continue, but there's been a lot of like corporate interest and like a lot of people have been coming into Charleston, you know, extractively and not like, you know, putting back into the community. And I feel like in 20 years, we may see, and hopefully if the fruits of my labor pan out the way they, I hope they will, um, we'll see like uh, parts of Eastside and Gatson Green that are, you know, they have that rich like black community. And then you have like black owned businesses that are in that area. that are still supportive and put back into the community. I still want to see that NAACP building on the corner of Columbus and um, America, like I, I still want to see those things. So I guess just like the overarching, like my view on the next 20 years, I want to see, like I said, like that, the black culture of the East side, I don't want to see it disappear. I want to see it be amplified. And you know, I want to see a lower child poverty rate. Like there's a lot of different things yeah. I want to see. But um, one thing I do want to see is I want the Commission on Equity, Inclusion, and Racial Conciliation to still be a thing in 20 years. And I don't want it to go away in the next few weeks like they're um, saying they are, but that's another thing, but um, I Well, the I city sponsorship of that, uh, it might go away, but I suppose there's no reason the why still stay, yeah. the participants can't figure out some way to keep it going. Yeah. 
So we'll see. Right. Yeah. But yeah, as far as my 20 years, I mean, that's just my general view. There's so it sounds to me things. like you're really focused on empowering black communities, um, preserving black communities, and ensuring that black communities are at the table and part of the city's flourishing growth. Yeah. Uh, productive growth going forward. Yeah, and also another thing I want to harp on too is like with the youth too, like there's, and this is my whole like, I, I could harp out all, all day about this, but I feel like a lot of times politicians, obviously a lot of them are older, but I feel like a lot of times they're like, talk to the youth, but not talk with the youth. And especially with the gun violence thing, I mean, the the average age of a gang member is like 16 or 15 like really so yeah look yeah. it up it's it's like un, it's like prepubescent or like you know 13 16 it's okay. really young yeah. anyways and then they'll come at us and not us but they'll come at just like younger black men especially and just be like y'all need to do this y'all don't need to do this anymore like this needs to stop however they don't give them opportunities to do other things like they don't give them opportunities well one for mental health because you can imagine your best friend dies and you don't have any mental health or anybody to talk to about yeah. it like you're going to want to kill the other person all that uh, that hate and i'm not saying like i don't want that but you know that hate builds up and that depression builds up and you might not feel like your life is worthy um, so it's like in my, in my right. you know, ideal future, I'll see like instead of like crackdowns with police when, a sh uh, you know, male, when, when somebody shoots at somebody, I want to be a, you know, crackdown on police. I want to be a, let's talk to that person, connect them with a mental health therapist. And, you know, if somebody's selling drugs, it might not be because they're a bad person, it might be because they don't have any other options. So like right. having options for kids. And like I said, the gangbanger at age 15 to 16, like drug dealer, they start in the same age. It's just like you if you can give them opportunities to do other things it it it's, it's it gives them more credence because a lot of times like right. i said a lot of times sure. you know, the older politicians but like, just don't though. do it and it's like we we don't have you know and i i told you like i was like making the same amount of money you know at 16 as my mom was making like and i know i teach kids who are in the same position so it's just Right, but not, not everybody is as motivated or as skilled oh, or as experienced or yeah. has the same kind of support or whatever. It's hard. It's, oh, not so you know, hard. It's easy to say, well, just don't commit crimes and do better for yourself. But in reality, the pressures and the restrictions can be really overwhelming yeah. um, for some communities, for some people in some communities. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, uh, I happen to know because I, I recently wrote a story about uh, policing um, and the, there are police officers in this area who are fully aware of the lack of opportunities that some of these communities face. They're powerless to do anything about it. They're tasked with dealing with crime and the outcomes of that. And, and yeah. you know, so they're, they're one, but they know that in an ideal world, they should be just one part of a bigger solution. Yeah. Like, okay, well obviously you have to deal with crime, but it, that alone is never enough unless you provide opportunities, unless you give alternatives. You they know, were the just jailing. And I, I do want to say this too, is like, as far as like, this is something that radicalized me at an early age, like us having the largest amount of people in prison or just like in confinement in the history of the world in 2009, I believe it was. Yeah. It's like the fact that that was a thing, it, it disgusted me as young. In 2009, I was pretty young, and I was like, we had the most people in like prison slash slave, modern slavery ever that's ever recorded. And that just like, 
it blew my mind. I was like, world. that's where we're living at right now. And most of those people who look like me, yes, you know? Disproportionately black males. And it's just like, it, it, it radicalized me at an early age. So yeah. I mean, I, and I think about that today, even like there's you know, friends of mine who I grew up with who are in jail, you know, and just like, you know, me advocating for not only, you know, the um, restructuring of police forces, but also the criminal justice system that, you know, heavy handed sentencing and, you know, we do all of that. So yeah. um, it's, that's all part of the future that I envision, just like having that whole system reconfigured. So the burden isn't on the black male women of the future to, you know, fight this fight that I'm fighting. And I'm sure there'll be activists 100, 200 years later, later, you know, quoting me or like saying that maybe I wasn't as, you know, this or even I wasn't enough as that. But, you know, I, I hope that as I move forward in the next 20 or 30 years, however long, it's like we make a stand and make sure that, you know, that base in Charleston and that rebellion that Denmark BC had is still here and people still see that we're here and we're not going to go anywhere. Um, and that's why, that, that what, that's what wakes me up every day and it, it, it was, it's what makes me so active anywhere I'm at, whether it be on the streets, you know, on a protest or in a community room or at a city council meeting. You know, I'm always just thinking about the future, the next 20 or 30 years, the next activist, like what more can I do? So. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you so Marcus much, Marcus McDonald, me. Black Lives Matter Charleston. Appreciate you having us here and uh, talking with us about your life. Yeah, thanks for having me. 12 Black Leaders to Know is a special project of the Post and Courier. We couldn't have done it without our sponsors. Thank you. There's a place where young artists can pursue their passion and learn from practicing professional artists. A place where they have the opportunity to explore and refine their talents in an inclusive and supportive community. A place where life-changing experiences are the norm, not the exception. This place, the South Carolina Governor School for the Arts and Humanities. Learn more about our public residential high school and summer programs. Visit us online today. 12 Black Leaders to Know is a special series of The Post and Courier, produced by Chris Zeller, with interviews conducted by Adam Parker, and video production by Matthew Crum. Thank you to our sponsors, Bank of America, College of Charleston Master of Business Administration, South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities, Claflin University, Nephron Pharmaceuticals, South Carolina Whitmore School, Ingevity, South Carolina Buy Black Locally, Trident Technical College, and Middleton Place. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, visit postandcourier.com slash blackhistory.